As a person with a very deep voice, I'm hired all the time for advertising campaigns. But a deep voice doesn't sell B2B. And advertising on the wrong platform doesn't sell B2B either. That's why if you're a B2B marketer, you should use LinkedIn ads. LinkedIn has the targeting capabilities to help you reach the world's largest professional audience. That's right. Over 70 million decision makers all in one place. All the big wigs, then medium wigs. Also small wigs who are on the path to becoming big wigs. Okay, that's enough about wigs. LinkedIn ads allows you to focus on getting your B2B message to the right people. So, does that mean you should use ads on LinkedIn instead of hiring me, the man with the deepest voice in the world? Yes. Yes, it does. Get started today and see why LinkedIn is the place to be to be. We'll even give you a $100 credit on your next campaign. Go to linkedin.com slash results to claim your credit. That's linkedin.com slash results. Terms and conditions apply. Thinking about your next career move in research and development? Then it's time to make your move to the UK. The nation that's investing £20 billion in R&D over the next two years. The nation that's home to four of the world's top research universities. The nation where great talent comes together. Visit gov.uk forward slash great talent to see how you can work, live and move to the UK. Welcome to Naked Reflections, brought to you from the Wolf Institute. I'm Ed Kessler, and each week I'll be taking an in-depth look at the stories reported by our friends over at the Naked Scientists. What does the latest scientific stuff mean for the rest of us? Stay with us and find out. Hello and welcome to Naked Reflections. One week last summer, wildfires were raging around the Mediterranean from Greece to Spain, from the south of France to Algeria. Further afield, in southeastern Australia, huge swathes of land were burning, and there were massive fires in the Amazon, which meant, in addition to illegal logging, huge parts of the rainforest have lost their ability to store carbon. Human activity since industrialization from around 1850 onwards is resulting in, yep, you guessed it, climate change and global warming of at least one or one and a half degrees Celsius. And this figure is an average across the planet. Many places will warm faster and see far greater temperature increases. For example, the Arctic is warming two or three times faster than any other place on Earth. The effects include rising sea levels, glacier retreat, changes in the timing of the seasons, and a rise in the frequency and severity of extreme weather events. You recognize the picture, and it's not a happy one. Neil Jennings takes up the story in The Naked Scientist Show, Coping, with climate change. Barely a, a week or a month has gone by without a very significant weather-related event that's associated with what we'd expect to see from a warming climate. So obviously over the summer we had floods in New York, in China, in London, in Germany, and those are exactly the kind of events we'd expect to see more of associated with climate change, kind of wildfires mm. in, in Australia. So there's a heightened levels of awareness about this issue because of what people are seeing and connecting the dots and saying we need more action yeah. on this. Even the most sceptic of climate change sceptics must be starting to worry. Climate and human behaviour is our subject this week, although the Naked Reflections team did consider calling this episode The Cliff Edge. Joining me to discuss this urgent topic are 
Madeleine Arihan, who worked in international development on the Iraq and Lebanon team for the U.S. National Democratic Institute. She is currently a Ph.D. scholar here at the Wolf Institute, researching about how cultural and religious narratives around climate are formed. And she's joined by a familiar voice, Dr. Shannon Shah. Visiting Research Fellow at King's College London, Shannon is also a Malaysian songwriter, human rights activist and presently director of Faith for the Climate. And as we shall hear in a moment, Shannon endured COP26. Let's start on the cliff edge. Can I ask each of you to nominate a place which is under direct threat right now, either from direct or indirect experience? Madeline. I would nominate the American West because this is direct experience for me. I'm from Los Angeles. I grew up with wildfires being just a reality of a particular season where the sky would turn pink and red and light would be like sunset, but all day long. We'd have ash falling from the sky like a snow, but it was hot. So that was typical, but that fire season has extended and extended because of the perennial droughts that we're facing. So it feels very much like when I speak to my family at home and to my in-laws who live in Utah, for about half a year, it seems that we just talk about fire. I know that's certainly not the way it should be. For example, my mother-in-law living in Utah couldn't go outside because of fires that were 800 miles away. But the fires were so great that the effect of the smoke was high enough where she lived that it wasn't safe for people to go outside. That's, that's the extremity that we're talking about at present. Uh, and it's very close to my heart. Shannon, fire, American West, drought. What are you going to bring? Just the way I see the world has changed since I took up this post at Faith for the Climate. And so the question becomes impossible for me because suddenly I'm aware that there is no part of the world that is not, you know, under huge impact. And some of these impacts are not very visible because they are slow onset. They're about things like sea level rises. Some of them are immediate and sudden. So just in the last couple of months, there's been flooding in northeast Brazil. There's been typhoons and flooding in the Philippines and Malaysia, snowstorms in Pakistan, Afghanistan and Turkey. And, and because of where I come from, I was born in Malaysia. I was raised there. You know, I'm constantly aware that it's the countries that have been impoverished by centuries of colonial and capitalist extraction that actually bear the brunt of the impacts of climate change. The language that we use now is they're in the global south. It does feel different, though, when something hits home. So even though I've relocated to the UK and I've lived here for more than a decade now, just witnessing from afar the recent flooding that's been happening in Malaysia was really quite heart-stopping and heartbreaking for me. And knowing that it wasn't just climate change, it was the effects of climate change being made worse by an inefficient and authoritarian and corrupt political establishment. We focused a little bit on the apocalypse, haven't we, and on disasters, understandably. But is there a more optimistic vision that we could uh, share with listeners, Madeleine? I would say it, certainly there's more optimistic vision. There's a very delicate middle that I think is really powerful when it's hit. You know, Aristotle always talked about virtue being between two vices. And the vice on the one end is a discussion of apocalypse and endings leading to people feeling such despair that they're immobilized. And then the, the vice on the other end is people thinking, well, everything's going to be fine. Somebody else will take care of it. It's not my issue. And so in both cases, on either side of these vices, they do nothing. But right in the middle, there's a place where you can see there is something, there is a better future that can be had, but it requires work to get there. And I need to take part in that work. So one of my major goals is trying to help 
elucidate what that future would look like. Because right now, what gets picked up in the news is the really dire predictions. And they are very important to understand, but they should also be shown, this is what could happen if we do nothing, but this is what can happen if we do something. For me personally, I must share with you that the fact that COP26 happened in Glasgow that it happened close by, it was felt on my doorstep. It made the conversation much more personal. And, and I think I was one of a number who thought, well, what can I do personally? But COP26 has been given pretty bad press, hasn't it? Barack Obama talked about it in terms of weak coffee and bad food is how he described it. Just tell us, Shannon, you were there and you've so articulately described not just the interconnected trauma of climate change, but the personal trauma in terms of Malaysia. What, what did you make of it? I think for me, the most helpful thing I read and heard was to think about COP26 in terms of concentric circles. So in the middle, the smaller circle will be the actual blue zone, you know, what's known as the blue zone, which is the official negotiating space. And the chair of our organization, Faith for the Climate, Giles, managed to get access to the blue zone through one of our partners. And then a bit Bigger than that, but still within the official conference would be the green zone where, you know, there are workshops and exhibitions and talks that are hosted and attended by representatives of countries, of NGOs, of businesses and so on. You know, this is what was known as the green zone. And I think Obama's comments were about the green zone, really. And I think just from personal experience, I'd agree with him. <laughs> but then you know, on the outer edges, you know, the biggest concentric circle, I think. So this is outside the official fence of COP, as it were, would be the civil society stuff, which was really vibrant. And that was where I spent most of my energy that week, just helping to mobilize um, between grassroots groups from across England, going into Scotland, working together with our partners in Scotland, especially with the different faith groups, you know, organizing talks, exhibitions, workshops, and, and most importantly, I think public action, direct action. So when we took to the streets on Friday with the Fridays for Future kids, you know, and Saturday in the Global Day of Action, just marching through the streets of Glasgow, that was phenomenal. So for me, it was almost like a tale of two cops. There was the bad food and weak coffee that Obama is talking about. But there was also the incredible solidarity um, and energy that I saw outside it's like good cop bad cop. exactly what i was thinking yeah there was good cop and, and bad cop so madeline a lot of your work is about and your research is about facilitating understanding what religions can do in this area it sounds like there's an overlap between both of you in this contribution tell us a little bit about that work my basic thinking the structure that i've been using to understand what i would aspire for or hope would happen with the world is that we need to have a large variety of climate leaders who come out from a, an enormous number of different communities because we make a mistake when we assume that just because we're all in this world together, we all have the same needs, we all have the same way of understanding the world, we all will fall into line with the same concepts. Instead, every single audience and every single group has their own particular perceptions and the things that motivate them versus other people. So having leaders who come out of those spaces, who are able to represent those groups and speak for them, is incredibly powerful and extremely important to legitimize climate work. And that needs to happen with everyone, not just people who are from the academic and scientific elites, but from religious groups. I mean, religious people are 80% of the planet, people who, who truly believe in some form of religious life. And 
because so much of the power is concentrated in countries where secularism is flourishing, it's easy to forget and to to not recognize this. But by having religious leaders come into the space and be taken seriously and be able to discuss this issue, we will be able to bring along the perceptions of, of the religious themselves. For example, there are these people in Peru called the poor mestizos. I'm, I'm sure I'm not pronouncing that correctly, so my apologies. They are people who are poor, but they live near these mountains that they call apus. They're these mountains that they consider to be sentient. So they offer offerings to the mountains, and if they don't offer them appropriately, sometimes they might get repercussions in the form of landslides, etc. So when they think about the environment, they're thinking about it in terms of two sentient beings interacting with each other. We have the, the mountain and its desires and its needs, and the person and their desires and their needs. And so what happens where a scientist would come in and say there was a, a flood or a mudslide because of some scientific reason, they're coming into it from a spiritual angle. But when we denigrate or don't listen to or, or hide these ways of thinking, then it's almost impossible to bring people along to having them be involved or having them do climate action that would be meaningful. So having a huge myriad of leaders coming out of all of these different religious groups and being able to speak about the way they perceive the world and how to help the planet from their perception would be extremely powerful. I think that's really powerful, Madeline. And as you were describing all of that, I was thinking, well, this is the exact reason why my organization exists. It's called Faith for the Climate. And it basically does what it says on the tin. It's for anyone of any faith, however they define faith for themselves, that wants to do something about the climate crisis. And it can be many different things. You know, we're open to people who want to write to their MPs or who want to organize locally with their own communities or who want to move their own religious congregations forward. I mean, whatever they want to do, they are welcome in the space. And I think what we find is that the people we tend to attract are the ones for whom this is sacred duty for them. You know, whether they're from Abrahamic or Dharmic faith or any other kind of faith, they consider this sacred. So they want to do this and they want to come together and learn from people who are not like them as well and maybe apply lessons within their own context. So I think that's the other thing as well. I think with religious communities, it's about thinking, well, who is my neighbor? Is my neighbor literally the person who lives next to me? Is it the person only from my own church or synagogue or mosque or religious community? Or is it even a non-human being that I live with? Is it someone from around the world who's going to be impacted by what I consume and the political choices that I make? Is that my neighbor? On that point, I, I think the really powerful thing here as well is for people to to look at climate uh, action and activism and see someone like themselves. And that may be a, a racial thing, it may be a national thing, or it may be a religious thing, or it may be any number of other things, like, like seeing um, a stay-at-home mother who's speaking out because you are also a stay-at-home mother, right? Because if you only see two people up there whose names you can name, like Greta Thunberg, who is fantastic and does wonderful things, but she does not reach all audiences. Audiences that she cannot reach may think, well, there's no place for me here. I don't relate to this. So instead of it just being a couple of names that are well-known, I know there are so many actors out there, but there are only a few that are well-known. If we can elevate many more names so that someone else can look and say, well, I don't necessarily feel like I can relate to Greta and her work, but I can relate to this person over here and the work this person is doing. And I feel like that particular angle is one that 
I can be associated with. That will have an, an enormously powerful effect for bringing a lot more groups of people into active work on climate change. I think for me, it's that perennial question, isn't it? I mean, I'm a social scientist by training. So, you know, is it bridging? Is it bonding? You know, the term bonding, I think, technically applies to forming relationships with people who are like you. And then bridging is trying to form a relationship with someone who is not like you and forming a connection with them. And I think doing work on climate really requires both elements of bonding and bridging. And I think with the bridging and bonding question, I would prioritize thinking about climate injustice, actually, wherever we come from, whether we are looking for role models who are like us or not like us. Because I think this is the thing that disturbs me most about the climate crisis is that, you know, and I've said this before, and I don't mind saying this a million times because I think it's true and more people should know it. But the worst impacts of climate change have always occurred in the poorest countries and poorest communities who have done the least to contribute to carbon emissions. And I think part of what religions can contribute so powerfully to climate action is to have that moral voice to uphold climate justice. Just to say that those who are most responsible for it, you know, whether these are corporations or rich governments and so on, they're the ones that have to pay the most reparations, to take the most historic responsibility for this and step up, right? And I think for religious groups, what I see is that Lots of groups can model a, a very good way of repenting of the sins of the past. This is Naked Reflections with me, Ed Kessler. My guests are Shannon Shah and Madeleine Airy Hahn, and we're talking about climate change. We seem to be facing a particularly toxic choice, standing between a rock and a hard place. In this case, well-established scientific findings and ingrained economic behaviour. Here's Emily Schuckberg from the British Antarctic Survey speaking on The Naked Scientist Show. Will climate change cost the Earth? The science says that we can burn no more than a total of a trillion tonnes of carbon if we want to avoid going above two degrees temperature increase. To date, we have already burnt 70% of our carbon dioxide allowance of that. Now, if we look at the total current proven reserves of fossil fuels, uh, the consequence of that science says that two-thirds of our current proven reserves of fossil fuels are effectively unburnable if we don't want to increase our temperatures above two degrees. And two degrees is the level that's considered to be avoiding dangerous levels of climate change. The current value of that unburnable carbon is about $20 trillion. Eye-watering sums there, but let's unpack the economic and, as Shannon just mentioned, the moral implications of tackling climate change. Should the developed nations pay reparations? You mentioned this just before the break, Shannon. I suspect the answer from you, at least, is yes. For the damage that they, and let me be honest, we, have caused by that development in the 19th century. So what's the argument for us paying those reparations? So there is a history of paying out reparations. When slavery was abolished in the British Empire... You know, reparations were paid out, just not to enslave peoples, but to the slaveholders. And I think this is why the discussion on climate reparations is so controversial and so many powers that be are so afraid of it because it opens up a whole other can of worms. But I think we have to discuss that. There are ethical questions there, aren't there, Madeline, in terms of handling this issue of whether we should be paying for the destruction that we've caused and the effect on the global south? 
this whole issue of climate change is an ethical question because it's the tragedy of the commons. The idea that here we have this planet and there is no central leadership that determines how the resources are allocated. So it's in the best interest of self-interested states to operate by taking as much as they possibly can before someone else does so. And so we operate at our lower level of thinking and action in the current system as it's designed, which is to think, what's the most I can get for myself right now? And how much can I help myself right now? And certainly that mentality is not going to help anything in the future. But we also know that people always prioritize the close future over the far distant future. That's just a a natural behavior. So when we're trying to talk about this as an ethical question, we're operating against all of our more base instincts as humanity. And our multi-nation state system is designed to allow those instincts to flourish. That's the whole system is built around it. So trying to find ways to make reparations or ways to improve this the system is fighting against all of these other incentives. And the thing that I, I would like to see more of is a sea change in the incentive structures themselves. So that it's not just, I'm doing this because I'm, I'm trying to do the moral high ground, because undoubtedly only a couple of nations would take that on. They have so much incentive to do what is best for them. But also, how can I make this in the best interest of the state, as well as the best interest of the world. And I don't have answers to that, but I think it's the incentive structures themselves that are the real problem in why we continue to know that we are doing ethically poor behavior, but we don't do anything about it. I sometimes worry that we talk in amongst like-minded people, that we are in these, I wouldn't say echo chambers, but we're in these groups that agree with one another. I suspect the bipartisan work that Madeline's trying to do in the US is trying to overcome that. Well, that's actually something I wanted to mention is that there is a lot more hope in this particular space than we tend to think that there is because there's people who are working on bringing together these different parties are having far more success than you would have anticipated. There's a lot less resistance on Capitol Hill among Republicans to the existence of climate change than there was in the past. For example, there is now something called the Conservative Climate Caucus, which was put together by Representative John Curtis of Utah. And it accepts the reality of anthropogenic climate change. And it acknowledges we need to do something. It's the questions that they ask really are, what do we need to do? And they have a a third or more of House Republicans are already in this caucus. And they're a fairly new caucus. So the fact that they could even get together and talk about this is really astonishing and remarkable and exciting. Isn't there an argument to say that those countries who have contributed to the global warming and climate change but didn't realise they were doing it in the late 19th, early 20th century shouldn't be responsible for paying reparations? Now, I'm not saying I hold that position, but I think that position needs to be aired. I know quite a few people who hold that position themselves, and it is not an illogical position to take. There are many moral questions that can be raised, but the, the logic, the syllogism itself is reasonable. And as a consequence, I don't know that the reparations, particularly in the United States, it doesn't have much of a political foothold. It's an interesting and fantastic idea if it were to be undertaken for how it could help, but it's unlikely to do so. So my hope is that we can find ways to achieve the goals of reparation without necessarily having that label of reparations or without saying assigning blame, because I know so many people all throughout the world who would be extraordinarily reluctant to allow that to occur. And therefore, the political divisiveness would just continue and continue. So even if we disagree with the idea that we should just give up on the concept or the word reparation, it may not be a way to actually cause something to happen. It sounds nice. It sounds great. 
and it makes us feel good that we're advocating for it, but it doesn't necessarily have political legs to stand on. I know that's not a nice position to hear, but it seems to me the most realistic. I'm going to come at this from a slightly different standpoint. And I'm, I mean, full disclosure, in my early 20s in Malaysia, I actually worked for an oil company for Petronas, the Malaysian state-owned oil and gas company. I mean, my university education was bankrolled by Petronas, which is why I had to work for them. Along the way, I learned a lot of things about the oil and gas industry. And after three and a half years, I broke my contract. I left as a matter of conscience. So I've seen things happen from the inside, which have really made me angry. And, you know, the whole reason for my existence since then has been an act of reparation. Like I've been trying to atone for working for an oil company and in the oil industry. And this has informed my work in social justice and human rights. So what I have learned is that at least for the last five decades, some of the largest fossil fuel companies have run campaigns to spread disinformation and misunderstanding about climate science, right? They've tried to confuse and deceive the public. They've lobbied politicians not to take action. So Total, the French oil giant, has known that burning fossil fuels was causing climate change since the 1970s. Other companies have known this as well. Shell, Oil lobbyists in America tried to cast doubt on climate science since the Kyoto Protocol was signed, right? Until today, oil majors like ExxonMobil are funding climate science denier groups. So I think the excuse that we didn't know at the time is false. I don't really take it in good faith. I think there is such a thing as denial, and denial is not just personal. I think denial is a collective phenomenon as well. It can be produced politically and it can be spread culturally and socially. You know, I hear what Madeline is saying, but I still think that it's important to pursue the discussion and make people understand what reparations actually means. Because it's not about making individuals pay. It can be something like, you know, um, making the fossil fuel industry pay a climate damages tax now that we know that the damage that fossil fuel extraction causes. And this climate damages tax is what we can use to fund climate action and which we can funnel to the people who need it the most. So it doesn't need to come out of everyone's pocket, but it comes out of the pocket of those most responsible for it. Interesting term, Madeline, before we draw to a close, the use of the word tax versus reparation. You indicated the discomfort, if you like, of the word reparation that many people have. And whilst none of us want to pay a tax, we all recognise that we have to pay our taxes. So maybe that's the sort of language that should be used. They found this again and again in social science studies, that if you ask people across the political divide about a position that they otherwise hold, but you use the language being used by the their political adversaries, they're likely to say that they don't agree with that position, merely because the language that's being used is, is that which they associate with the other side. But if then you change the language to something that fits with the way they discuss a particular issue, like poverty, it matters to both sides it's pretty hard to find people who don't think it's important for us to address poverty. But the terminology that's used by one side, for example, social justice versus the other side, which is more like just helping the poor, I suppose, that is the only difference. And you just switch those around. People may find that they, they're uncomfortable with a proposal. And I know language is just the tip of the iceberg when it comes to this, but it is still very relevant to recognize that people will have a natural aversion to if they have these strong associations with terminology. It's certainly about finding ways to talk that won't automatically turn off the other side, because then the conversation just doesn't move forward. 
And I've seen that happen again and again. It just, it just stops. And we don't want it to stop. We want it to keep going. We want people to feel like they, they have a voice that's being heard and that we can find some kind of a consensus together. Well, I'd like this conversation not to stop, but that's all the time we have this week. Well, thanks to my guests, Shan Share with listeners, Madeleine Erihan, and thank you for joining the show. If you did enjoy our show, take a look at our archives of dialogues with topics as varied as paganism, peace, Stephen Hawking, and the nature of wisdom. You may also want to have a listen to other podcasts from the Wolf Institute or from our friends at The Naked Scientists. I'll be back next week with more guests and some bracing discussion. Thinking about your next career move in research and development? Then it's time to make your move to the UK. The nation that's investing £20 billion in R&D over the next two years. The nation that's home to four of the world's top research universities. The nation where great talent comes together. Visit gov.uk forward slash great talent to see how you can work, live and move to the UK.